Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thank you again for joining me here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 45. Well, all good things do come to an end. My golf playing season has come to uh, somewhat of an end this week. Down here in South Florida, I've enjoyed a nice summer at Quail Ridge Country Club in Boynton Beach. Last weekend was our final weekend of the membership. Another fantastic summer. Tons of new and old friendships established. Lots of great golf on their two championship golf courses. Special thanks to Dan Brosnahan, the head pro, Bill Langley, the GM, all the food and beverage staff that kept my friends and I well taken care of, and of course the members that allowed myself and the other boys of summer in for a few months. I'm sure I'll be back there a couple times over the winter. I try and hop the fence whenever I can, but for now, the clubs are going to go away for a little while. It's time to turn things up a notch here at the back of the range. We have some absolutely amazing episodes lined up for the fall. In just the last week, I've spoken to some PGA Tour winners, USGA champions, and even an inductee into next year's class of the World Golf Hall of Fame. They're all stopping by the back of the range, so you should stay tuned to all of our social media channels. That's where you'll learn about all of the upcoming guests. This week's episode is unique, one that I'm very excited about posting, but you know the drill. Let's get some of the podcast housekeeping stuff out of the way first. We are on Instagram at the Back of the Range podcast. That's where you'll find our upcoming guest announcements and giveaways. If you haven't followed us there, please do. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Don't worry about writing down the Twitter handle or any of that stuff right now. All the links that you need are available in the show notes of this episode of the podcast. And to make it even easier for you, remember, the central hub is thebackoftherange.com. Everything is right there for you. I mentioned giveaways. So we give away towels and hats and beer koozies and all sorts of stuff. They have our logo on them. The best way to get one of those is to leave a review in Apple Podcasts. I check that all the time. If you leave a handle or you want to shoot me a screen grab of a review that you left, go ahead and do so. I will send you a towel. I'll send you a hat. I'll send you something. Just a way to thank everyone for supporting this podcast throughout the entire year. So earlier this year, a handful of friends and I took a trip up to Inverness, Nova Scotia in Canada. We went to play golf at Cabot. If you haven't heard of Cabot, you need to do some research before you book your next golf trip with your friends. They have two golf courses, the Lynx and the Cliffs, and both of them are on everyone's top 100 golf course list. Not in Canada, in the world. So while I was there, I had planned on recording an episode with their general manager, Andrew Alkenbrack. But here's the thing. When you're at Cabot, it's, it's just really hard to pull yourself off those golf courses. While their restaurants are fantastic, and, and they really are, when you're at Cabot, you just want to eat quick and get back out on the golf course as quickly as possible. I think we played about 90 holes in three days. Well, the last thing I actually wanted to do was sit down in front of a microphone, and thankfully Andrew took mercy on me, and he just sent me back on the golf course. So we didn't get a chance to sit down and do an interview. So fast forward a few months, and I'm at Quail Ridge, and my buddy Perry says, you know who would be really great for the podcast? Ben Cowan-Dewar. He's the founder of Cabot Links. So thanks to Perry, our guest this week is Ben Cowan-Dewar. Ben was a golf travel operator based out of Toronto. So how the hell did this happen? How did he build Cabot? 
you know, how and why did Ben start on this journey that would lead to the creation of two world-class golf courses in a small town that was basically a relic of the coal mining industry? Remember, this isn't a tropical beachfront resort. These two golf courses actually blend into this small town in Nova Scotia. This is a fascinating episode for those of you that are interested in how golf courses get created and how chasing a dream and being supremely confident in your ideas can pay off big. So let's get started with this week's episode. Ben, thanks so much for joining me here at the back of the range. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Well, uh, in previous episodes here at the back of the range, we've had uh, college coaches, we've had tour professionals, we've had nationally ranked amateurs. You are the first golf course owner or golf resort owner that we've ever had at the back of the range. So I'm a little bit out over my skis and that's not an accident that I threw a little Canadian term in there, but I'm a little over my skis here. So before we get started into your experience and how you became a founder and owner of a world-renowned golf resort, can you tell us a little bit about how you actually got into the game of golf? Yeah, I absolutely, uh, absolutely can. And uh, I'm so happy to be with you. And uh, how I got into the world of golf was not being any of the things your former guests were. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, uh, I, but I started playing the game as a kid and, uh, and, you know, fell in love with it. And we had a, uh, we had a family farm and I built a hole on it when I was eight years old. And I used to watch the, uh, the PGA tour on the weekend and I would draw golf holes, uh, in this big binder I had. And, uh, and so for me, my love of golf, which was uh, infectious and deep and fostered by my dad and my grandfather as a as sort of an eight, nine, ten year old. And then uh, by the time I was 11, I was starting to plan golf trips for my dad and sometimes for my dad and my grandfather of all the places I wanted to go and reading the World Atlas of Golf and uh, and studying golf courses and you know, I, uh, I could play a little bit, but I always say that, uh, that I learned early on, I wasn't, uh, wasn't going to be good enough to do anything with my golf game. Sure. So the, uh, so the better thing was to focus on loving golf courses, uh, which came easily to me. And so, uh, you know, that really led me into starting a golf travel business when I was going to university, uh, in the early days of the internet and, uh, through that and good fortune, I was able to travel all over the world and play most of the world's great golf courses and, uh, and decided that that was really what I wanted to do. I thought at one point, you know, maybe I wanted to be a golf course architect, but, uh, I don't think, uh, uh that would have been just right for me. And so being able to develop and, and try and develop something that, you know, really was, uh, you know, on the class of the great courses that I'd traveled all over the world to see was sort of the goal back, uh, gosh, almost 14 years ago now. So. Well, well, you just by saying that you opened up a, a couple additional questions I have for you, but before I get into the designers of Cabot links and, uh, the, the newer course Cabot cliffs, um, you mentioned golf travel and doing that in the early days of the internet I'd imagine that that really helped you establish relationships and learn about the needs and wants of golfers that are looking to travel all over the world for different destinations. So what were some of the things that you learned early on that made your clients happy in the golf travel industry? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, there's so many things and you're right. It was, uh, it was an education in the wants and needs of golf travelers. And we did both golf tours for, 
individuals to, you know, to Scotland and Ireland, but also to far-flung places uh, like South Africa and, and Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, really, I think it was experience, experience, experience. And, you know, I think um, people couldn't necessarily articulate great golf architecture, right. um, but they knew when it wasn't good. And so, you know, the, uh, you know, Tom Doak, who's the great critic, um, used to talk a lot about sort of what made a golf course great. And I would say that the vast majority of people who traveled really gravitated to beauty more than to the greatness of, you know, sort of the, the architecture were able to articulate it. And it sort of became the equivalent to me of, you know, of food. People might not be food critics. They might not be able to articulate the nuances of a dish, but they know when food tastes good and those restaurants are full and the others, you know, the others struggle. And so I think, you know, it was that, and I think what, you know, the patterns that changed were, People and, you know, when Pete Dye built PGA West and he built an island green 17th like Sawgrass, I remember him saying something to the effect of you need to do that for the people on the West Coast who would never see Sawgrass. And I think, you know, if you think about that in 25 years and how much farther people have been willing to go and are willing to go uh, to experience golf, I think more than anything, it taught me that if Royal Dornick in the north of Scotland could be around for 400 years and still be drawing people, then, you know, if you really focused on finding the best site and building the best golf course, you'd be able to, uh, you'd be able to draw people uh, not anywhere in the world, but almost anywhere in the world. Well, and with the internet and with the way travel is, um, you know, the, the world's getting smaller. It's not so much of a uh, big ask or an unthought of, you know, possibility to travel all over the world and catch flights and go, you know, go chase after the most unique and, and, and jaw dropping golf courses in the world. So you, you transition out of golf travel into course development. Now I I can't even begin to imagine how that process happens. There has to be a story or a, a, uh, the light bulb goes off moment of a fortune where you get put in a position to do that. Did, is that how it happened for you? Yeah, it, it did. I mean, through that, and we did a lot of early days of the internet digital marketing and we're helping golf resorts, you know, really all over the world, just transition as to how do we use the internet to reach more people. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, being at the ground floor of that sort of thought, well, you know, maybe with rose colored glasses and de- definitely youthful naivete, you know, sort of thought I could do this. And, uh, and I was at a dinner in Toronto in uh, March of 2004 and was seated next to the minister of tourism for the province of Nova Scotia, which is uh, one of our Atlantic provinces in Canada, just East of Maine. And he said, I have this great site in my home riding for a golf course. And I said, you know, minister with all due respect, every farmer at 200 acres thinks I've got a great site for a golf course. We both sort of chuckled and thought that was probably where it ended, but he followed up with some photos of the site that is now Cabot links. And they were aerial photos. You couldn't really get a sense of whether there was much undulation in the land, but what you could see is a mile of ocean frontage on a sandy beach with a town on the interior. And, you know, in 2004, that seemed awfully strange to me. Obviously, St. Andrews has been around for 500 years. Dornick, as I mentioned, 400 years. 
but those golf courses existed and the town sort of, you know, grew up around them and, and along with them. Right. Um, but to find in 2004 as a Canadian, let alone in Canada, this town that existed sort of perfectly uh, on the inside of this rectangular piece of land and, you know, at least whetted my appetite to go and look at it. And I went down in uh, December of 04 and I walked the property with uh, a group of volunteers who had been trying to get this image uh, or this uh, sort of dream off the ground, which was they had this image of creating a links course on this site. And uh, the reason it had not been uh, had not been developed with homes was that it was a coal mine from 1880 to 1953. And so the golf course in Inverness was not my original idea. Nicholas had done a routing plan. Bram Cook, the Canadian architect, had done a routing plan. Uh, Mike Hurdson, the great uh, great architect, had called it one of the 50 greatest sites left for golf in the world. And I think that, um, you know, I arrived at a time that it was, uh, it had been tough to assemble the land the dream was still alive, having, I think, first been fostered in 1969, which predated me. And, you know, I had uh, I had lots of energy and uh, and didn't know how hard it would be and thought this seemed like a great idea and uh, and decided from that day to sort of pursue it and move forward. And uh, and a decade later, it's, uh, you know, we're uh, we're open and uh, obviously have two courses and and you know uh, a little bit of the rest of that story. Sure. That was the genesis. Yeah, and you know I did a little bit of research, and you know <laughs> when when you think of just acquiring the land, it's not like you just cut a check to one person and there's all your your land. These were actually separated into different parcels with multiple owners. Is that correct? It is, and really that was the reason. You know, I went back to some of the folks. Uh, who had tried to do it before and certainly spent a lot of time with this volunteer group who were, you know, really the fathers of the town and, sure. and all amazing individuals who had selflessly tried to do it. And, you know, I sort of kept coming back to, well, if this is such a good idea, why hasn't it happened? And, and the real answer to your point was it was a very complicated land assembly. And again, I am, you know, I didn't have a, uh, enough money to build the golf course uh, when I first saw it, but I certainly thought I could do it. And, um, and I had time. And so I spent, you know, the better part of the next three years. Um, so from that December 04 visit, we, uh, signed a deal on all of the land in November, um, of 2007. So three years, uh, almost to the day after. And so, I think, again, um, you know, most people's first reaction when I said I wanted to build a golf course in the middle of nowhere was <laughs> uh, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. And uh, except for my uh, my then fiance, my now wife and my parents who, you know, if any one of those three had their senses about them, probably would have said the same thing. But they all thought it was uh, certainly a plausible idea. And, uh, and so we pursued it. But, yeah, it was there was a the province of Nova Scotia um, owned some land, the municipality owned some land, there were volunteer groups, there were private landholders. So the land assembly was probably the most complicated part of all of it. Of course. So you get your architect together, you make that decision, but also you have another person that is your partner. Um, you get Mike Kaiser to be your partner for this, who as many people will know, uh, they may not know the name, but they do know Bandon Dunes. So that is 
that's his baby out there on the Pacific Northwest. How did you guys come to the the agreement or come to the decision to enlist Rod Whitman to be the designer of Cabot Links? Well, so uh, yeah, Mike uh, Mike became uh, my partner in 2007, right around the time of the land assembly, and. Uh, which was like winning the life and golf lottery. Sure. Obviously, Mike uh, Mike had proven um, that the concept of remote golf uh, could work, and it had sort of broken the mold with Bandon um, in so many ways. And so, um, you know, at that point, Rod uh, had known Mike for years, and they'd uh, Rod had worked with Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw before that with Pete Dye. And so Rod was certainly known to Mike. Rod, in my mind, was uh, the best Canadian architect alive and, you know, with the same style as Bill and Ben and, you know, and having all, as did Tom Dope coming out of the, uh, coming out of the Pete Dye school where they sort of design and build themselves. And I'd asked him to come with me on my second visit a month after that December 04 visit and look at it. And so Rod um, had sort of cemented a design and had a bunch of routing plans. And interestingly, when you compare them to all of the different architects, it was just so dramatically different. Sure. And the Cabot Link site's a relatively compact site. But uh, but yeah, so Rod was sort of always the choice for Cabot Links. And, uh, and Bill and Ben, uh, Ben Crenshaw, obviously, and Bill Coor, uh, who did Cabot Cliffs. And on Mike's first visit to the site, Bill accompanied them and... Uh, and we looked at the land for cliffs on that visit and, uh, you know, everyone who had been uh, saying one course seemed like a lark. Uh, of course, Mike knew that, uh, in his math, one plus one equals three. <laughs> so, you know, we were already moving on to looking at Cabot cliffs and thinking about the future of building a second course. So as you can imagine, that was a, uh, that was a good day and a little bit different than some of the other previous site visits. Oh, of course. Of course. You're describing this as if everything just kind of fell into place. Everything worked perfectly, you know, getting Mike Kaiser involved as your partner and then uh, engaging one of the best uh, architects in Canada or the best, in your opinion, you know, Rod Whitman and then, you know, obviously Cord Crenshaw. But you, you got I can't let you off that easy. Give me um, give me an example or give me at least one of your oh shit moment. Like, what did I get myself into here? I mean, I'm sure there's plenty. But can you think of one where you just got home after the end of a long day and just said to your your fiance or wife at the time, just think to yourself, what did I do? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I know you're, uh, I know you're time constrained and, and that could take days if we went through all of those moments, but, uh, you know, and I think I had it almost every, you know, almost every person I pitched the idea to, um, you know, was dismissive of it as having merit. And, uh, so I think, you know, you had it a lot, but you built up a, a steady sense of, uh, of rejection. I think in the early days, um, it was easier because you sort of believed you could see something that, you know, maybe other people just hadn't, hadn't been on the land. Maybe they hadn't seen Lynx golf work in Tasmania, where obviously Mike was a driving force at Barnboot Platoons or abandoned, let alone Ireland, Scotland, England. So, you know, I think that was easier. I think the, the moment that resonates the most was actually after we moved from Toronto to Inverness, Nova Scotia in early 2008 to start construction of uh, of Cabot and I w- um, actually went out to Bandon for my dad's retirement as a retirement gift. And this was in uh, October of 08. And obviously the world was falling apart and certainly in sure. the golf course development industry, 
um, it became a depression, not a recession. And so uh, I got the call that we were going to shelve the project and, uh, you know, just couldn't see if there was a clear way forward. And I think, you know, once again, why Mike is such an amazing, you know, amazing guy was he sort of understood the impact that would have on uh, Allie and I. We had built a house in Inverness and had a, uh, had a six-month-old, our first at that point. And, you know, he said, we'll figure it all out. But look, there's nobody that thinks uh, building a golf course in this environment is the right idea. And so, you know, from there, I had to travel from Oregon to Nova Scotia, which I remember is three flights and a bit of a drive sure. to get home to inform, uh, inform Alley. So that was probably the biggest moment. Because in the early days, everybody telling you it wouldn't happen and it couldn't happen and it wouldn't work. I think once we started, you sort of felt like it was all behind you all the tough times. But you know, we came up with a plan and we built through 2009 with a really bare bones and Rod Whitman moved to Inverness and he got on the bulldozer every day, worked seven days a week and he rough shaped all 18 holes cabin links with a crew of two other people. And, um, you know, and really it took shape that summer, but I think golf digest had said they estimated in 2009, there were four golf courses under construction. And you think about, the previous couple of decades. And so, of course. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was an amazing summer. And by the end of it, you know, I remember walking around with Mike and we could see all the golf holes and, uh, and you could tell that there was something really special and, and Rod put his, uh, you know, put his heart into, into the project and into the ground. And, uh, and then the world obviously got a little bit better and we, finished it through 10 soft opened in 11 and, and really with a huge benefit of opening in 2012 against almost no competition, uh, because there really wasn't, you know, any golf being built. So, right, uh, right. so I think, you know, uh, were there hard moments? There were so many, uh, to, uh, as to fill many hours, but I think, you know, there were many serendipitous moments, not in the, not in the way that it's locked, but just in the way things, as you said, fell into place and, uh, and it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. And before we uh, get into discussing uh, the current status and the, all the highlights of, of the links and, and the uh, and the cliffs, you mentioned earlier that you kind of had a little bit of a childhood um, in, interest in being an architect. So you hire these these great architects to build these courses. What was your involvement with the design process? You know, were you kind of cautiously making sure you weren't poking your head too far into the process. I think, I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to understand the dynamic between a course owner and the architect that they've hired to build the course. I mean, I think it's different and it really depends. And I think on the owner and on the architect, and I think it can either be a really great marriage or it can be, um, you know, have a lot of friction and, uh, and I think in both cases at Links and Cliffs, it was uh, far more uh, a marriage than friction, but I think different, right? So certainly there were people that had hired Rod who would have left him alone to do whatever he, um, whatever he wanted and shown up on opening day. And in some ways, I think um, for any designer, they probably prefer that because they, you know, just do what they do and they go about it. Um, I had at this point seen, you know, almost all of the world's great courses and had a great memory for most of them. So for me, it was very visual of, oh, this relates to this hole or this relates to that. And 
And for better or worse for Rod, I lived one mile from the site of Cabot Links <laughs> and, uh, and didn't have, uh, didn't have, uh, enough time to keep me away with getting ready to open everything. So I was there on site every day. And, you know, I think Mike has, uh, has an amazing ability as he's worked with so many great architects and obviously the results speak for themselves. But I think, you know, he has this terrific ability to draw the best out. And I think, you know, that process, and I'm not speaking for Rod, but I think, you know, Rod described the building of Cabot Links uh, having been in the business for 30 years is sort of this assembly of a team that was what drew the best result out. And I think, you know, we learned a lot of lessons and certainly it was hard as a kid drawing golf holes. And finally you get the chance. Sometimes your youthful exuberance would overtake, uh, overtake. And I'd say, what about this? Let's do this. We should do this. Let's try this. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, I, I think, you know, Rod a couple of times thought about driving over me with the bulldozer, <laughs> but thankfully he, uh, he didn't. And then, you know, Bill and Ben are, um, are two of the consummate gentlemen in the game and just amazing individuals and, uh, and also amazingly brilliant. And, uh, and I think there was, um, you know, obviously we had a huge respect for them and, uh, and they'd worked and worked wonders with Mike previously. So I think that, uh, I think that process was very much the same. And I think it was a process that at its best, it was about getting to the best answer and the best idea, not necessarily your answer, your idea, but just what was the best for this. And, and I think one of the things at Cliffs and, and at links at links, we have five par threes and three par fives. And, you know, I'd seen enough golf courses that were par 72, four par fives, four par threes to know that it wasn't an accident, but that was mainly what it was. And I think, you know, really the buy-in was let's find the best hold the property gives us. And if you think about um, Cabot links with sort of that unusual configuration, and then you look at Cabot cliffs, which has six par threes, six par fours and six par fives, which is not unique in the world. There are a couple of others, but unbelievably rare. And and again, you know, when people would say, is that something you set out to do? You know, Bill would say, no, it's just, those were the best collection of holes in the land. And, and certainly I think, you know, that was the process and that's their process. And, uh, you know, we're all very, very proud of the, the results that it yielded, but you know, it is my contributions are de minimis compared to what those guys who uh, both Rod, Bill and Ben, you know, really at their best and they're artists as much as they are architects. Sure. You've mentioned that the the land itself is in this, um, you know, it was a former coal mine right outside or right in, I'm sorry, right inside the town of Inverness. How conscious are you? of the growth of Cabot. I know it's a business you need to, you know, keep it sustainable and turn a profit, but how conscious are you on the impact that it's making to the city of Inverness? Well, that's the first time I've ever heard somebody call Inverness a city. So, uh, so maybe I should be even more worried (laughs) about what it can become, but you know, no, I'm just joking. The thriving metropolis of Inverness. (laughs) The thriving metropolis. Yeah. So, you know, Inverness is an amazing, amazing place. And, you know, obviously I've been going there for 14 years and lived there, uh, you know, many years as a resident and was there yesterday and still spent a lot of time there. And, you know, it was a community that in 1880 was formed around the uh, the coal mining industry. And, 
Uh, and the mines, as you, you would have known when you were there, but went down 300 feet and out to a mile under the ocean floor. And I think if ever you need to feel grounded, you know, you think about these, uh, you know, these individuals who would have been going down to uh, a mine in 1897 and, you know, going down under the ocean floor and mining coal. I think it's just an amazing history. And obviously, as the mining industry uh, went away and in uh, in the 1950s stopped this site was sort of left there and undeveloped for a long time and certainly it was a community that with the loss of its industry suffered like many rural communities and many mining towns had and and i think you know this summer we would have seen including caddy 650 people working in a population when we started, I think it was about 1200 people. Sure. And so I think the signs of life are, uh, are amazing. And the signs of progress are amazing. If there was one thing I wildly underestimated in, uh, in 2004 as a 25 year old who thought building a golf course will be easy and everybody will love it. I think the pace of change for the community has been dramatic and, uh, and I would have viewed that as, uh, you know, as a 25 year old rose colored glasses on uh, as everything would be amazing. Everybody will love it. And I think that piece we are extremely conscious of and the reality of, you know, our business and of, you know, golf, but, but tourism as a whole is, you know, part of what makes the experience so meaningful for people when they make the trip to Inverness is the relationship with the caddies and the staff members and, and all that. And if you look at the thing that would give us more pride um, than anything, it's the customer reviews that talk about the amazing people that made up the experience. And so we can't but help feel uh, like we, you know, we want to be a part and have to be a part of it being a great sustainable growth story. And unlike many businesses, which could pick up and move down the road, um, you know, obviously we're firmly rooted in Inverness. And right. I think un unlike so many businesses today that in an era where people talk about disruption and, uh, you know, and businesses going away, you know, it, it feels like you'd never say never, but it'd be tough to disrupt that geography of, you know, a mile of ocean frontage at lengths, a mile and a half at cliffs and two golf courses. And we have the case studies in Scotland of, you know, golfing around for centuries. So I think when we take, our view of Cabot, we think, you know, sure, it started 14 years ago, but if it's going to be around for hundreds of years, you know, what do we need to do? And I think that approach is probably the most important one as we think about the economic development of the town. Sure. And, you know, you just, you kind of hit on this a little bit right there, you know, with all the locals that work there, I think you said you employ, was it 600, 650? Yeah, uh, 650, so, yeah. So you, you have these the, the locals in Inverness that are employed by Cabot, 650 people. So you're not really getting people from around the world to work at Cabot. You're using your local, your local pool of, of talent in the town to work there. Was, was that kind of a conscious decision uh, or, or did that just kind of happen uh, naturally? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, um, it was obviously conscious. It obviously just made sense. I think increasingly, you know, with a population of 4,000 people within, um, you know, within 45 minutes of the site, it was, how do we maximize that and do things like talk at, uh, you know, at the schools and, uh, and certainly 
we have a range of, uh, of people who have had careers and have retired and really have chipped in to see it be successful, um, which, you know, is as amazing as a, uh, a caddy this summer who started working for us as a 14-year-old cleaning dishes and now is doing a business degree. And, you know, I think the human story of that we're so close to because it's such a close-knit community and whether you go to the gas station or the grocery store, you know, there isn't, uh, there certainly aren't six degrees of separation sure. if there's even one. So I think, you know, it was very conscious. I think the reality is as we grow and as we continue to grow, um, you know, we, we have to do a great job of being a great employer. And I think we're starting to be a place that uh, people are finding. So, you know, we have a few, uh, a few Kiwis, a few Aussies, um, you know, who show up and, it's interesting in the history of the coal mining in Inverness, there was, uh, there were Belgians, there were Scots, there were Irish, and there's even, they call one little area, you know, that, that was little Belgian town. And I think that reality is, it's sort of a miraculous thing to imagine a hundred years later, these people coming from far flung places to, to be a part of it. And I think interweaving that is a great part of the story and really a great part of the Canadian story. Um, but absolutely focusing on, you know, our, uh, our local talent pool, which has been rich and meaningful, offers such a deep part of the cultural experience of a visit. Sure. Well, I have just a, a few more. I know that you're, uh, I know you're kind of pressed for time. I just had a couple more other questions for you. I want to talk a little bit about the, the course itself. You know, as, as I said earlier, or, uh, in the intro, you know, I, I was there earlier this May, um, with, with a handful of friends and, you know, one of the favorite uh, aspects of the of the trip was after we get done after we got done playing at Lynx there's the uh, the public house that's right there by the course there's also the restaurant that's right uh, directly across from the from the pro shop and it seems like one of our favorite things would be to uh, venture out onto the putting green on the 18th hole with the kind of the spotlights that are put on it at night so I know there there must have been other late night putting contests on that 18th hole I'm sure with all the time you've spent there, uh, there's been some late nights. So do you have any stories about any late night contest that you may have seen over, uh, over a pint or two? Well, um, I saw one, uh, I saw one Monday night and which, uh, you know, which seemed like it was a hot, the most hotly contested one I've ever seen, but you know, it's an interesting story as to how that came about. And we were in the opening year, obviously, the, the club, the club has the panorama restaurant, which is all glass looking over the 18th green. Yeah. You know, when we, when we built it, it's so close to 18 and people were worried, well, I get hit, you know, how will that work out? And it really, you know, hasn't ever been an issue, but it creates this amazing experience when you're dining, which is you're looking over the 18th green, you're watching golfers come in and, you know, even as the sun is setting and there's barely light, you're watching people put out. And so it creates this amazing uh, panorama view of the Gulf and the sun setting over the water, which is around the East coast. And so that experience was like a 10 out of 10. And then the sun goes down, it gets dark and the, uh, wall of glass turns into this wall of black. And it was sort of, you know, a bit of a letdown. And I remember my wife saying, why don't we get a light and shine it on the 18th green? And then at least you'll be able to have a view as you finish your dinner. And so it really wasn't, uh, you know, and that's, a, again, sort of a, a serendipitous thought. It really wasn't through some genius of this will be great. People will love late night putting contests. It was that. Sure. And, then, uh, and then one thing obviously led to the other. But uh, 
I think uh, Ashley Mayo, who was uh, who was with Golf Digest now, Golf Magazine, and their great social, uh, you know, one of the great social media people in golf. I remember, um, you know, her sort of shining a light, no pun intended, on these late night putting contests. And now it seems like everybody who's ever followed Ashley is uh, is lining up to uh, is lining up to take their chance. But you know, look, it's just again about creating an atmosphere where people can have fun and. And really, you know, for the the vast majority of us who don't do this for a living, it is about that, right? And it's about how can we bring fun to golf and how can we, you know, bring that experience to uh, to our guests is really how we think about it every day. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned these contests. You know, when I was there with my friends, I can't remember exactly which NHL team these guys were playing for, but there were some hockey players there and uh, they actually threw down a, a couple hundred dollars on a up and down contest with one of the guys that was coming in late. There definitely have been some people that have uh, stopped by Cabot to play some golf from other walks of life and other uh, professions. So can you give me maybe one person that you did end up seeing at Cabot that you thought, wow, this we have really arrived if this guy or this lady is coming all the way to Cabot to play some golf. Do you have it, a celebrity encounter that you can think of? Our goal with it and, you, you know, really from the outset was to be a place that people could come and, uh, and have fun and experience it and just, uh, just do, um, what they want to do in their downtime and not sort of shine, uh, shine an unnecessary light on them. And I sure. think for that reason, I probably, uh, you know, I probably would be more mum on the answer, but I think, you know, it's amazing to watch, um, you know, it's amazing to watch the differences. So I'll tell uh, I'll tell you one story. There was a, a famous uh, a famous actor um, who was there, who was you know sort of wanting to keep a low profile. And as he's coming up and he's crossing from the fourth hole at links over to the fifth, and you know there were these kids lining up with their autograph books, and uh, and you know he sort of had a bit of a sigh, and you know probably thought he'd, he'd slipped away to a remote corner of the world, wouldn't be bothered. Anyway, he starts over to the kids and he looks at them and they're looking past him down the hole and, uh, you know, no interest in him because there was a, a third line right winger for the Philadelphia Flyers who was coming up the hole and, uh, and they were, uh, they were into the hockey, the hockey. So I think, you know, for, uh, for a good Canadian background, uh, there is nothing like the hockey players for the locals to drive, uh, to drive their excitement. But, uh, but look, it's, you know, it's amazing. I think it's amazing when you look back and you stand on the property and you think, could we imagine, um, you know, could we imagine people coming here? You know, you crossed your fingers and it really was a field of dreams of, you know, building it and hoping they would come and not knowing, you know, and, sure. and those moments existed right up until opening day. And obviously on opening weekend, we had a cover story of the New York Times Sunday sports. That was a huge story that Bill Pennington wrote and, you know, all of those things sort of propelled us forward. But, you know, I think to imagine would people come and to lie in bed awake at night, you know, crossing your fingers, hoping they would to getting to a place where we're talking about, you know, celebrities who have come, I think it's all, uh, it's all something that we sort of have to stop and pinch ourselves a little bit. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, look, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing outcome, amazing really, story. I guess yeah, is what I'd say. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, before I let you go, just 
Give me an idea what you see in Cabot for the next five years. Do you, I know that there are plans to create a, a short course, I believe a 12-hole short course that's going to be your, your third project there. Uh, I know that lodging is probably something that you're looking at, trying to expand, getting more rooms, getting more uh, more bandwidth for, for guests. Do you see a – I know there's a McKenzie Tour event. Uh, there has been one over in, uh, in Bell Bay, I believe. Do you see maybe the LPGA coming to Cabot? Do you see a President's Cup coming to Cabot? What do you see out of the next five years? Well, I think it's a good question. And, uh, you know, we think about it a lot. Obviously, in the very near term, um, over this winter, we're building a club as a cliffs, a par three course, which Mike has had such terrific success at um, at Bandon, at the Bandon Preserve with. And we've seen also at the Sandbox and Sand Valley. So that's coming next, uh, the par three, the Cliffs Clubhouse. We're also building a wellness, uh, sort of health and wellness, a spa, if you will, with uh, with sauna and steam and, and, you know, really trying to integrate into the Nova Scotia wilderness. And so I think that feels like what's in the immediate and the near term. I think um, a third course is something we think about and talk about, and again, Thinking back to would people come for one, it's amazing to be talking about, you know, needing a third. But, um, you know, I think that is in the next five years, hopefully something that we get to. And uh, and in terms of events, um, you know, we have uh, we've staged a number um, of events and we've had, you know, matches with uh, with PGA Tour and pros and we've had lots of lots of great tour pros who found it on their own on holiday, which, you know, was great. Certainly, you know, wanting to shine a light as bright as we can on that landscape and, you know, being able to imagine and, you know, folks coming down the, the closing holes at cliffs on TV is something that we think about. So I think, um, you know, finding what is that right event and what's the right size for us would be amazing. Um, and so I think that's a real focus. It's just sort of trying to square away what is that perfect size event for us and uh, and we'll get there but yeah and i think continue we've sold um real estate which if you'd said in the early days would that happen uh, i don't think we would have guessed we could but we've sold out of all of our villas and cabinet links which come back in the rental pool um and you know people stay in them when they visit and we have more residences that will sell at cliffs so I think it's just, you know, continuing to find ways to grow the experience and uh, and make it better. And, uh, and you know, we'll, uh, we'll keep doing that, I think, for some time. Well, Ben, I really do appreciate the time. I, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that uh, uh, you know, congratulations on all the success you're having up there. Uh, my friends and I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the time that we spent uh, earlier this year in May at Cabot. Uh, you know, my favorite course is the Lynx. Uh, I love the cliffs, but I think uh, I think I like the Lynx the best. But uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again soon. Thanks so much for joining us here at the Back of the Range. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the Back of the Range. Special thanks to Ben Cowan-Dewerk, co-founder of Cabot Lynx up in Inverness, Nova Scotia, Canada. If you want more information on that place, go check it out, cabotlinks.com. They are booking up fast for next year. 2019 is just around the corner. So go check that out. And again, as always, we will have another episode here for you at the back of the range next week. Thanks.